We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support. And now for the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. F. Scott Feel, and I've got with me a very special guest, good friend of mine from all the way back in high school, Rich Ferrara. And I have to be honest with you, this episode is 100% completely selfish <laughs> because it's going to dive into Rich and his teaching styles and, and what he's come to learn and The cool part about this is he was actually the last student mentee to teach with my dad and to learn uh, coming up. Teachers generally have to do some in-class hours, essentially. They've got to get their hours in, and and Rich was able to work with my dad right before he retired. So super excited about today's episode. Rich, thanks so much for coming on and for, for sharing your story. Tell us a little bit about your educational journey and how it led you to where you are today. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this, actually. Well, I mean, I think kind of like you, you know, we grew up, both of our parents being teachers, I kind of shied away from it. And we were just talking before we started about how you shied away from it as well. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I wanted to do when I left high school was be an English teacher, you know, because my mother's an English teacher or was an English teacher. She retired a couple of years ago. But, you know, I went through undergraduate. I started out actually as a communications major. I had it in my my head that I was going to go into the music world, you know, that sort of thing. And especially, or I guess at least in the late 90s when I went, I went to the University of Delaware. It was a lot different than I expected. It wasn't the type of program that, you know, I think I assumed that we'd like, you know, enter the classroom and go right to the studio and start recording or something. And it wasn't like that. So I was a little worried about that. I wasn't enjoying it. And somewhere in my freshman year, I decided to change to become an English major. And then I'm trying to remember the, the sequence of events, but Somewhere in there, the the girl I was dating, who was a year older, was going to study abroad in England. And you had to be an English major to study abroad in England. And I think, if I remember correctly, that kind of tied in. It was just one of those serendipitous things where I was just like, I guess I'll become an English major and go to England, you know? And it stuck. And I, I really enjoyed it. I'd always been, and I, and I remember actually growing up with you back in like, you know, sixth grade, we used to read you know, all, all the time, which obviously isn't that common, you know, with, with kids that age. So we were always into it and I was always into writing and things like that. So when I became an English major, that was my focus. I was going to go into writing perhaps, or something along those lines. And then when I graduated, you know, you faced with, do I go to like a publishing house or try to freelance? And somewhere in there, I kind of realized how much I loved talking about literature and how much I kind of was already, you know, in that frame of mind with like my friends and family when we talk about literature. And that's kind of where I decided to give teaching a shot right after I graduated. I think I was in Delaware for a couple of months after I graduated, still dating somebody. When we broke up, I moved back to Long Island decided to go to grad school for teaching. And fortunately, you know, the school I went to um, allowed me to just go for, I think I went for a summer session, a fall session, and then the spring session, that's when I was able to teach with your father. So I was able to really get right into it, you know, less than a year. Then in the, so that's the spring of 2003, I started teaching with your father. Like I was telling you before, I mean, this is great for me because I still, you know, I guess whoever mentors you first is the person that you kind of think back to a lot throughout your career. And even though I had professors that talked about education before that, 
you know, you don't really feel, you know, the ins and outs of it, the, the nuances of it until you're in the classroom. So working with your father really, it, it definitely set my style, you know, and I think it, it helped that your father and I had a similar type of personality to begin with, right? I don't know if it would have been different if we were, you know, different types of teachers. He, your father was very laid back, you know, he was very easygoing. He was very like free flowing, you know, like to freestyle and, you know, let the ideas kind of fly and, and didn't mind going on tangents and things like that. And that's how I've always been too with conversation. So that definitely helped. But, you know, I, I definitely think back to that a lot throughout my career. Now I'm in it, you know, 18 years and still think back to that teaching, you know, that a lot of the things that he, uh, he taught me, it's great. Yeah. It's crazy how full circle things have come. Like I obviously, you know, was pretty good. Like you said, reading and writing at an early age, thanks to my dad, you know, I placed out of two freshman English classes due to my AP scores in English. So, you know, that was great. And that's kind of what, you know, led me to become an English major at Wake Forest was I was good at it, just came naturally thanks to my pop, but finished at Wake Forest my senior year. I only had three classes left. I took golf, bowling and intro to Japan, you know, so <laughs> I had a ton of free time on my hands and, you know, I, I had to find something to do. I had to find a job. Right. And I, I thought to myself like, well, I don't want to read. I don't want to write. I don't want to edit. It, I don't want to teach. What the hell am I going to do with an English major? You know, and luckily I, I volunteered at the hospital in, in Winston-Salem there, uh, Wake Forest Baptist Hospital my senior year. And I, they put me in the PT department, you know, and I was like, I was filing files away and organizing things for the therapists and stuff. And I thought, wow, you know, this is pretty cool. Like, you know, batting balloons around and playing volleyball with the patients and having a good time. Like I, I can do that. You know, that looks fun. And then I looked at the list of prereqs and I was like, nope. Nope. Don't have that one. Don't have that one. Nope. Not that one either. So, you know, I graduated in four years uh, with my English degree and then had to take a whole nother year of prereqs just to get into PT school. But, you know, I did, I got into PT school. My dad was very supportive of that. He always kind of wanted me to do, you know, something healthcare related. He felt that that just would always be a need and he thought it was, you know, a good idea. So, you know, I kind of listened to him and I was like, yeah, you're right. Like this, the, there will be a need for physical therapy. And, and for years, PT was one of the top 10 jobs in the like US Newsweek, you know, yeah. listings. PT was a, a, always in the top 10. Good job satisfaction, good pay, you know, it was just, it was a, a field that was worth going into. And so I was pretty happy, you know, on the, the road that I was on and uh, eventually ended up in a program where, you know, I, I started out, it was a master's. I did that. They offered the transitional uh, doctorate of physical therapy. If I stuck around another year at East Carolina there, you know, I ended up not finishing it there because the window of opportunity kind of closed when my dad was having heart problems. And, you know, he ended up passing away before I could pass my board exam. So I, I ended up eventually passing my board exam. And while I was in the transitional DPT program at uh, St. Augustine, since they accepted a couple of my credits from ECU, the head of the educational doctor program, the EDD came and asked me if I was ever interested in teaching, you know, and I've joked around on this podcast several times about how I had no interest in teaching whatsoever. Cause I was like, I sat in on a couple of my dad's classes, man, those kids were dicks. Like I didn't want any part of that, you know? I don't know how you guys do it, especially the high school age, you know, but, you know, I went home and I reflected on it a little bit and I thought about it and I was like, you know, if my hands go out or my back gives out or my knees give out or whatever, and I can't do physical therapy, at the very least I could fall back on teaching, you know, it would be good to have for around retirement. So I went through the EDD program and loved the didactic stuff, thought it was awesome, hated the dissertation, would not wish that upon my worst enemy. It's just something I never thought I would do, never want to do again. Thankfully, I don't have to. Do have to do some research, though. I need to do some publishing in the upcoming years. But like you said, the, the first mentor that I really had, the first real teaching mentor uh, was the head of the EDD program who talked me in the, you know, the program. He's now passed away as well. And so it's tough, but I still do reflect back a lot on my dad and his style of teaching and, and my mentor, Dan, and his style of teaching. And I kind of fit in that same, you know, wavelength as you guys where I'm pretty laid back. You know, I, I like to not really take myself too seriously, you know, try to just kind of flow with the education and with the information that's out there. And it's nice to kind of go back to those, those guys and, and, you know, kind of review and, and relive some of the styles that they use. Because the one thing that I did find out through the EDD was one, 
I wasn't a very good student. I, I wasn't a great learner. I just tried rote memorization and reading and rereading and rereading. And that's not really learning. That doesn't help you very much. But, you know, we'll dive into this a little bit deeper, I'm sure. From a pedagogy style, I didn't know how to teach and I didn't know how to learn until after I went through an EDD program, which is insane. I really should have learned that stuff way earlier in life. Luckily, I picked up some of the critical thinking and clinical thinking skills in my DPT program, but still, it was a struggle for me to get through those programs. You know, I was a straight B student with a couple of C's sprinkled in, occasional A, but it was mostly B's, you know? And I think it took the EDD to really open my eyes and show me, here's how people learn, especially adult learners. Here's how we can teach to those, you know, aspects. Here's some things that you need to know about when it comes to, you know, the cognitive part of, of taking in information and then learning it. So tell me a little bit about your experience with student teaching, right? Like you go through a master's program or whatever, and you have to get your student teaching hours in. Tell me a little bit about that setup and how that looks. And then what that experience was like going through it with my dad. Yeah. Like you said, it's intimidating, especially back then with the age of the students, right? Your father was a ninth grade teacher. So, you know, you're dealing with 14, 15 year olds, which is one of the more difficult groups, you know, as far as attention span and apathy, you know, I think it has changed. Now, I think about this a lot. I talk about this with my uh, teacher friends a lot. There was a different atmosphere 18 years ago, and I don't know if it was something that's generational or it's something that's specific to Lindenhurst, where we teach, but 18 years ago, when I was teaching with your father, there was a more, I'm trying to think of the right word, but kind of like dangerous feel to the school in the sense that there were a lot of fights, there wasn't really bad violence as far as criminal violence, although there was some. I mean, I, I've had several students that ended up in jail and armed robberies and drugs and things like that. There was a big drug problem right around, I guess, within my first decade of teaching, there was a big opiate problem in that part of Long Island. And you definitely saw it in the students. And unfortunately, I've had students that passed away. So that was the element when I first went in, when I was first student teaching. And... That has changed. Now it's, again, I don't know if it's generational or specific to, to where we are, but the kids are extremely open-minded. We don't see like the racism and the homophobia and the, those types of things that we saw back when I was first teaching. We had real problems with that. I don't really have any discipline issues at all. I mean, I can't think of the last time that I had to write any type of slip for a student. It's been probably seven, eight years. Now, part of that could be that once you're teaching for a long time, I mean, the way I look at high school teaching, above all else, it's about, and it's probably similar in, in college too, but with high school, it's so much about the rapport that you have with the students, right? I think back to high school teachers that I still remember and even college professors that I remember and had most to do with the rapport they have with the students, right? And obviously how knowledgeable they were and things like that, but the rapport kind of comes first. That's what draws you into the, the teacher. It could be that now teaching for 18 years, I just have a natural rapport with the students that makes them less likely to behavior problems, right? It could be that. And your father definitely you know, had some little, you know, uh, little hoodlums in his class and he was able to take care of them very easily, right? That was inspiring for me that, you know, his laid back personality, he would, you know, have a couple of behavior problems and just with like a wave of the hand, he was able to get them to stop, right? Whereas my first couple of years after that, after I was with him and I was alone in the classroom, I definitely had some problems, you know, I definitely had some Real kids. Jedi mind trick stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I've also learned, I think, something that he also taught me. Lindenhurst is a working class district and some of the kids come from difficult home lives and uh, you can never really know, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. So I had a, a situation my second year, my second year by myself, where it was this student, it was a 10th grade classroom. He was just a huge problem. Every day, you know, he was distracting other students. He was you know, talking back to me, I'd write him up, he'd still talk back to me, curse me out, all these types of things. And I wound up really, you know, having like kind of a personal resentment against the kid, which I think in the beginning, you can't really help, you know, when you have somebody who's just every day getting on your nerves, 
you know, you know, you're not supposed to, but you do anyway. And the one reaction. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, I mean, at that point I'm 23 years old and the kids, you know, I think he'd failed a couple of years. So the kid's like 17 years old. He's only a couple of years younger than me. You know, <laughs> like you said, he's being a little dick and you're like, you know, I'm not going to take this. What a failing the kid found out four or five years later at a happy hour talking to a colleague that this kid had, you know, the worst home life, like father beat him, alcoholic, all that kind of stuff. And that made me realize, you know, I'd known a couple things about the kid, but trying to talk to the parents was never easy. And, you know, I never was informed by guidance or anything like that. So I never really knew all the kind of gory details until the kid already graduated, you know? And so I kind of took that to heart. And now I've fallen into the style I feel uh, later in my career, like your father, where rather than take any of that personally, if a kid is, like I said, we don't really have the behavior problems that we used to, but if a kid's like not paying attention, not doing the work, cutting class, whatever it might be, I don't take it personally. I, I try to really kind of, if I can find out what's going on in the home front, but if I can't, I try to take the kid aside, you know, have some, find some kind of personal connection, whatever it might be. And that usually, you know, with nine times out of 10 kids, if you find some kind of personal connection, whether that's just like they're an athlete and you start talking about sports or they're, they're into music, you start talking about different bands or whatever it might be, the kid kind of comes a little bit down to earth and that kind of oppositional defiance they might have isn't there anymore. So I think I, I kind of got away from your question, but you know, with, with the student teaching experience, that was the first thing that, that I really noticed about the classroom was I was really intimidated by all these young kids and your father had such an easy way about it, you know, and he didn't rush anything. And, you know, if we get to it, we'll get to it, that sort of thing. And, and that, that I think was the first eye-opening thing for me, but the first thing that made me realize that my personality, you know, being civil to your father has meant that I could do it. You know, I could like, if, if I can be myself and be, because I was worried about being like, you know, I think we had a bunch of teachers in high school that were huge disciplinarians and strict and yelling. And I'm like, I'm not that type of person. And seeing your father at work made me realize that I didn't have to be, you know, I could just be myself. And, and it took a couple of years, like I said, for me to actually achieve that, you know, I mean, especially once I first had seniors and again, they're 18 years old and I'm 23, 24, feels like you're teaching your friends. But eventually, you know, I think I, all teachers say it takes like six, seven, eight years. And then once you're at that point, then you stop consciously thinking about it. You know, you kind of just go in and you go with the flow and you have that kind of style and, and it just gets easier and easier from there. Yeah. I think one of the things that you're touching upon is style. You know, you have to find your own style. And I'm learning as a first year professor that I still don't have my own style. I'm just learning the content and the curriculum and trying to, you know, get that across to my students. But, you know, my very first teaching job was about two years ago as an adjunct professor for Baylor University. And, you know, that was some of the feedback that I got was that, well, you know, you're still new, but uh, you got to just have your own style. You got to find your own style, you know, so I get that. And I think, you know, you bring up another really great point about establishing a rapport, you know, and building that communication. For a physical therapist and a professor, I do that all day, every day with my patients. You know, I'm, I'm trying to find that connection and that communication, something I can connect with them with on a personal level that will get buy-in, you know, for some of the home exercises and things I'm trying to get them to do to get them better. You know, there's only so much I can do working with them two, three days a week. You know, they're, they're, they have to take ownership and they have to take control of their own destiny and kind of work on things that, that I'm, I'm helping them with and prescribing. But at the same time, you know, fast forward again now to being a professor, I have to do that same thing over again with my my students, you know, and, and building that rapport and, and really finding the connection in every individual, I think is going to be a challenge because there's so many students over so many courses, uh, you know, so that, that's my next. What, what is your course size like usually? Uh, we're pretty fortunate. I will say uh, I teach in a flex program. So it's uh, anywhere from 20 to 35 or so. It's manageable. Now I have colleagues that teach in the residential program and their student load is anywhere from 50 to 75 students. And they have to break those up into smaller cohorts and they have lab assists for all that. But like, it's harder to make that connection. I feel like sometimes when, when oh, yeah. you know, the course. Remember my, my freshman 
it was freshman psychology class at Delaware. It was 300 students. Yeah. So from a student perspective, I mean, I can't even imagine from a professor's uh, perspective, mm -hmm. but from a student perspective, you're just a number at that point. You know, yeah. they, don't who you are. <laughs> they don't care who you are. You, know? yeah. you, you as a student would have to make a real effort at that point to reach yeah, out. You can't, you can't care about 300 people in one classroom. It's yeah. impossible. Not enough hours in the day for sure. Right. What, well, what, what's your total student load then? So again, I usually teach uh, three or four classes per semester. Uh, the classes, it's one class per um, cohort. Uh, so it, it, like it would be different trimesters. All three courses I teach or all four courses are in different trimesters. So it's individual courses. So in one semester, I, I probably have uh, anywhere from 20, 40, from 60 uh, 60 to 100 students. Okay. Yeah, that's manageable. Yeah. Um, we have uh, about the same. I mean, I teach usually four or five classes, depending on if there's a lab or something like that attached. My, I teach a music history class that's part of, uh, it's in 12th grade English class. And that's usually a little less. Like last year, I had 16 students. But yeah, it's usually between 100 and 150 on a good year. On a bad year, it might be over 150. But I find that that's manageable throughout the whole, you know, and I, obviously I have a lot longer with them because I have a full school year, you know, right. full nine months, but seven out of the last 10 years, I've taught uh, the inclusion program, which means that I have a co-teacher as well. So that helps a little bit, yeah. you know, co-teacher working with the special ed students and giving them a little bit more, you know, individual help when they need that. So that's, that's helpful too. That makes it a little easier. For sure. Well, tell me a little bit about some of the tips and tricks and, and things that you learned, some of the nuances and things that, that you learned while taking your student hours under my dad. Well, I mean, like I said, the big thing was the rapport. But the other thing that I think about all the time is a feeling that new teachers have, that there's not enough time in the, in the day, you know, and at high school level, we're only 40 minutes a period. So it's really not that much time. I mean, it's by the time you take attendance. Usually I have uh, the kids do a writing journal, but like with your father, he would take attendance, he would go over homework and then you have like 20 minutes or something, you know? So um, there's a feeling uh, when you first start out that, you know, it's not enough, right? Which you think would be the opposite. Well, yeah, when I, when I was, before I was a teacher, I thought it was gonna be the opposite that I'm like, how do I fill up a period? But then once you get in there, you're like, how do I get everything done? And what I learned from him, you know, big tip was, not to worry about it, because you'll get it done, you'll get there. And if there's some sort of redirection, like say you're going over a piece of literature and a student asks a question or tells a story or whatever about a certain topic, and then you go off on that tangent, that's worth it, right? Because that's what takes you to these teachable moments, right? That's what gets you to these moments where the kids are all invested. Right, especially if it's coming from them, especially if they're asking questions and, and they're curious about a subject, even if it's not what you wanted to go over in that period, now you can, you know, focus on something that they're curious about and you have their attention. And your father was great with that because your father, and I, I think this is something that probably should, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's only true, I'm sure it's not just true with English, but it's especially true with English that a professor or a teacher needs to be knowledgeable about a lot of different areas because when you're dealing with literature, you know, there's the technical part of it, which is, you know, something, but the largest part of it is, is the wealth of information that's coming out in any piece of literature, right? And that could be history, that could be science, that could be whatever field you're talking about. Your father was very knowledgeable and very curious. Your father was definitely a great learner. He was a great, you know, um, curious mind and that comes out in the classroom so when students would ask him questions about whatever it was and it could just be something about the mess or it could be something about you know something in his childhood or something about whatever your father was able to kind of go off on a tangent on that in a way that was valuable in a way that wasn't just you know conversation or just you know um you know getting through the period it was something that once he started talking, the kids were invested in it, you know, and I always remind myself of that nowadays when I'm in the classroom, kid asks a question, and I have all these things that I want to finish, you know, get through with the period, and I always kind of bring myself back to that idea that it's okay, go on this tangent, 
you know, explore whatever they're talking about. And we'll get to it tomorrow. You know, I've even had, when I have a person in the classroom observing, like say it's an administrator, usually if it's a chairperson, I've had a couple of chair people that were, were great teachers themselves. Even when I'm being observed, if something happens and, you know, you have your lesson plan written out and you don't get to everything, but there was something in the class, you know, in the discussion that inspired something new. If they're, in a, if they're a chairperson that I've admired, usually they'll agree with me. And usually they don't care that I didn't get through what I, you know, told them I was going to get through. That sort of thing. So that, that I would say is the most valuable thing for your father. Your father was definitely someone that, the, the, even though they, like I said, they're apathetic 14, 15 year olds, they would come in with questions, you know, and he just had that um, persona that was very inviting, right? I remember that from before I stood and taught with him. I remember just growing up with you, you know, and your father driving us places and things like that. Your father was, he just had that personality. He definitely wasn't just in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think I got a lot of that from him, right? That that lifelong learner, that, that curiosity that, you know, I, I think for me, the thing I've learned so far with teaching is that I'm very good at storytelling. And that to me is a great way to be able to teach, especially from an English standpoint. But storytelling and metaphors are really how we learn best, I think, you know, and that's how I've learned to educate better, especially when it comes to even patients, right? If, if I can make that connection, like we talked about, right, build that rapport, I have to be a wealth of knowledge if I want to connect with eight different patients a day, male, female, athlete, geriatric, whatever. I have to know about a lot of stuff if I'm going to hold these conversations and, and connect on a personal level, you know? And so I think that, that you really hit the nail on the head um, as far as, you know, big takeaways and, and just being able to roll with it, you know, and just say, hey, you know, if we go off in that direction, it's, you know, maybe not even a tangent, maybe if it, it's just a metaphor for what we were trying to teach in the bigger picture, you know. Um, That's a good point. So if, I, if, a, if, a, if a student doesn't, or all of us as learners, if we don't understand something on one level, um, telling a story, you know, using a metaphor, an analogy, that sort of thing. Um, you're right. That's how you come back around to, you know, your, the original idea, the original, um, you know, intention. I mean, I, I always tell my students what I try to do throughout the school year. Um, and I, I noticed that the, I was only with your father for a semester, but I noticed that there's certain um, themes that would run through every lesson. It didn't matter what we were doing, which novel we were doing or which kind of assignment. He had certain themes that he'd always go back to. Um, and I've tried to do that as well, where, you know, we'll do say four or five different pieces of literature throughout a school year, and then we'll do other assignments, poetry, short stories, things like that. But I'll try to find a theme that I can kind of weave through everything, because then when you do go on those tangents, you could always come back. If you're not coming back to the lesson of the day, you can come back to the general, the overarching theme, right? For example, this year, because of COVID, um, and I think it was helped out by the, the type of literature that we did. Um, mental health was the theme that ran through everything, right? And whether we were doing, you know, Flowers for Algernon, which is a science fiction story about intelligence. And, you know, so you examine what it means to have a high IQ versus a low IQ, or we're doing um, a story about a child with autism, or we're doing the story about depression or even Romeo and Juliet, which is, you know, depression, suicide or love or whatever. Um, there's a way to weave in mental health because it, it's involved in everything. And so I would find myself when I'm you know, going on these tangents with the students talking about whatever, they're invested in mental health, obviously, even if they don't know it, they care about whether they're happy or not. They care about things that, that you know, um, change the way they feel. And especially in this last year with COVID and being locked down, it's had a dramatic effect. It's been, again, I don't know if they all realize it, the younger kids probably don't, but it's had an adverse effect on a lot of them being locked away. You know, I mean, there's certain students I had last year that I never saw their face. You know, I mean, they were remote students for the entire school year. Um, some I never saw their face and barely ever heard their, <laughs> their voice, you know, um, and that does, you know, did have a, an effect. So 
I wanted to, no matter what we were doing throughout the year, folk come back to that in some way to make sure that they were kind of checking in on themselves, you know, and making sure that they were uh, in the right frame of mind. Because when it comes down to it, um, this is one thing that's particularly true of high school. Um, they need an English degree, right? They need to, I mean, not an English degree, they need um, to pass the regents, the, the state exam to graduate, but that's all they need. And nine out of 10 of them aren't going to become anything close to an English major, right? You know, small percentage of that. So um, I see my job, you know, obviously I want them to pass the regents and, you know, it's, that's not a difficult thing to get them to do. Um, but more than that, I want to make sure that they leave high school as like, you know, your father and, and you lifelong learners, right? I want them to have that curiosity. Um, and also understanding, you know, who they are, because a, a huge part of high school is uh, identity and finding out who you are. And I see many of them go through like, um, you know, sometimes really um, large changes from ninth to 12th grade. If I have a student when they're 15 and then I have them again when they're 18, some of them are some of them don't change much at all. And some of them change dramatically. Um, and that idea of identity and, you know, that ties back to the idea of mental health, checking in, making sure that they're okay, making sure that they um, are, you know, um, checking in on themselves and, uh, you know, exploring um, the things that are going to make them curious and happy and, and all those types of um positive attributes that come out of education you know so that that's the fortunate thing with high school that i don't have to get them a specific degree so um i can always make the theme of the year something that is outside of english right you know so yeah it's and it's always time. it's nice when uh you know a teachable moment can become more than just an english lesson right and it's a life lesson you know mm -hmm. and i think high school is the perfect time for that you know yeah. But I think, you know, you're spot on too. You have a goal and you have a, a test they have to pass, right? The regents, we have the same thing with the NPTE, the board exam for physical therapists. So like for the, you know, there are constraints and there are some limitations and guidelines we have to follow and stick to them, get all this information in so they know and they're ready to pass that test. But at the end of the day, I'm not as worried about the test as much as I am like, hey, did you come away from my class learning something? Like, did you learn about life in general? Like I love to tell, you know, experiences and, and, you know, instances that I've had in my life and my career that directly relate to whatever topic we're talking about. You know, it's, it's, it's easy for me to, to recall these things because they're so vivid in my mind from like, oh, I had a patient that was just like this and here's what I did. And it didn't work out that well. I had to change things and pivot and do something different. And then it worked out, you know, like, you have to know that not everybody's a textbook patient and they're not all going to work out the way you think. So like you have to teach them to be critical thinkers. You have to teach them to be clinical thinkers and just think and, 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 you know, realize that not everything is like you learn in the textbook. People are people. There's a lot of intricacies and differences and real life happens, you know? So do you need to know the things for the exam and pass the exam? Yeah. But there's also bigger issues in life that I think that we can tackle and learn, you know, and that's why I really do enjoy teaching and educating. Um, you know, and so I, I love having this conversation. Um, You'll see those rewards come back to you too. You know, you, you said it's your first year yeah. you know, down the line as you've been teaching for a number of years and you keep up with certain students, you know, that's the, the most rewarding thing that I've found is when a student comes back to you and it's rewarding when it's in a technical sense. Like I had a girl this year who was in my music history class four or five years ago, four years ago. And she just graduated from Fredonia, upstate New York, um, with a music degree. Um, and she had to write her, you'll appreciate this probably, she had to write her uh, dissertation on um, comparing Frank Zappa to, I forget who it was, one of the classical composers. But that was, you know, I thought that was a cool dissertation to have to do. And uh, um, she came back to me, you know, for the technical part of it, right? No, also the subject matter, you know, which I guess is the technical part of it as well. Um, and that's satisfying that, you know, in my music history class, I had them do a research project that's similar to that, much less, it's only five pages as opposed to 40 pages or whatever hers was. But um, it's satisfying to see that I taught her this in 12th grade. And now in her senior year of college, she's doing, she's learning from it and, and asking my advice. 
but it's, I think even more satisfying for me when I have students who will come to me on like Facebook six years later and say like, when you told that story about this, like I still think about that. And that happened, you know, to me and that sort of thing. Um, that, that's the, the really rewarding thing when you see that, like you said, those life lessons that you've learned and you, you know, bring to your classroom. Now they see the effect and they remember it. And now you're one of those teachers that, you know, they think about as they go through, go through their life. And it might not have anything to do with education. Usually it doesn't. Usually they're, you know, it's in their family life or something like that. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot about how my dad used to do um, homeschooling as well. After he would finish school, sometimes he would head, you know, a couple of days a week, he'd stay after and teach a homeschool kid, you know, or, uh, um, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't able to be in the in the school or whatever he would go and, and teach those kids you know and, and a lot of those were same thing trouble patients or trouble students I should say um, you know and they were out of school for whatever you know issue it was and uh, you know it really showed me a lot of how my dad thought about things like empathy and you know uh, being there and, and compassion, you know, and, and really trying to educate all, all the students as equally as possible, you know, and I think that just kind of shows, you know, the kind of person he was, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, but on this podcast, we'd been talking about doing a couple of legacy episodes at some point, and this is my first dive into it, but, you know, where we took our mentors or our loved ones or people that really meant a lot to us and, and kind of interviewed them, all right? And so two of my mentors, my father and now the head of the EDD, uh, the EDD program, uh, have passed away since, so I, I can't interview them, right? But it's nice to have these conversations with people who have, you know, been close to them and worked with them and, and kind of learned from them. Um, but one, you know, kind of selfish question that I, that I have is, you know, what was it like for you to work with my dad as a person? You know, I mean, I know I tell my kids these stories, you know, and, you know, I'm hoping that uh, they'll get a different point of view and not just be like, oh, dad's ranting about Grandpa Frank again, you know. Um, but for me, him and my mom were both, you know, much like your parents, hard workers. They, they instilled a good work ethic in us. Um, you know, they were at every baseball game or, or basketball game or play practice or, you know, whatever it needed to be. They were, you know, my dad was president of the booster club. My mom was, you know, president of the friends of the arts. They were involved. They were always doing something, trying to help us, trying to help the community. What was it like, you know, for you working with my dad just as a person? Yeah. And, you know, you tell you the booster club, I know that's how my parents um, became friends with your parents. I think we came close to them was through the booster club. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I realized, and you'll probably appreciate this, but I realized um, working with your father that you two are very similar, right? You know, you have similar personalities. Um, that was kind of interesting and a little strange for me when I first started because we'd been close when we were in like middle school. And now I was having kind of these flashbacks working with your father to that because not that your father acted like a 12-year-old, but you know, a similar personality type of things. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that I was fortunate to, to keep up after I worked with your father was he was very, personality-wise, he was very like right off the bat, there was no distance, right? Your father was able to get close to like right away. You know, yeah, he was he was like the mayor, you know, never met a stranger. He knew everybody all, you know, hey, how you doing? Waving to people, you know, that was just who he was, you know. Yeah, definitely. And, and so as a as a student teacher, a lot of times because I've been a mentor now myself a number of times and I try to take that on myself. I don't know if I achieve it, but I try to like make it so that when the student teacher comes in the classroom the first day, there's no distance. It's not like I'm the mentor and you're the student teacher. It's like, what do you want to know? What do you want to talk about? That sort of thing. Um, and your father was very good at just, it probably helped that we knew each other beforehand, but we, I, I only knew him as your father growing up. It's not like I knew him as like, um, you know, the way that I got to know him as a student teacher where we were seeing eye to eye about adult type of things, you know, but, um, but that was the welcoming uh, aspect of him that, you know, from the first day, he was already joking with me and, you know, being really honest about not just the, all the good things in the classroom, but like the political things going on in the school, 
right? And I learned a lot about that from him as far as how to negotiate that, right? And, and how you act around certain people as opposed to other people. Um, and I am, you know, I said before that I, I, I feel like I was fortunate to, to come away from that learning, um, you know, that closeness, uh, not just with like a student teacher, but with my colleagues. And fortunately, when your father retired, which was the next year, so did like 30 something other teachers. And so um, I think they hired like seven or eight English teachers, seven or eight people in my department that year when your father retired. Um, and so I had seven or eight colleagues that were all starting right around the same time I was starting. And we're still friends, right? We're still, you know, not all seven or eight of us are still there, but there's four or five of us that are, have been working together now 16, 17 years. And I'm in a band with two of them. And, um, you know, we're all kind of the closest that you can hope to be with work friends. And that way of, you know, as a teacher, you have to kind of have a skeptical eye towards the administration, you know, um, not, not in a negative sense, but in a keep them in check type of sense, right? Like you don't want to be taken advantage of. I mean, education is an interesting field in that you don't really have a boss. I mean, technically you do, you can get fired, right? Um, you have somebody that's telling you what to do. You have somebody that, you know, is giving you certain objectives, but, you know, for example, my boss, my new boss now, uh, started last year and, you know, because of COVID, I probably talked to him face-to-face -face like five times and in the grand scheme of things, he doesn't have the power to fire me. Right. You know, I have tenure and I have reputation and that sort of thing. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to do anything to get fired. But um, so that skeptical eye towards administration, um, maybe you have a little bit more power as a, as a teacher because you have those protections. And uh, your father definitely taught me a lot of that, how, you know, you uh, obviously are respectful towards you, towards the people that are uh, in charge of the school, but you want things to change for the better. You don't want to be taken advantage of. Your father was really good at negotiating those lines, right? Like you said, he's like the mayor, right? So um, he was the, he was in the teachers' union for a long yeah, time as well. He was, and that, that and that's where I think he he gained a lot of that, you know, that part of his personality. Um, I've never been a part of the union because um, it's just <laughs> that's something I. I wanted to, the drama of it isn't something that I, that I wanted to be involved in, but um, I could see how someone like your father was really good in that position. I have a, a friend there now who's been teaching a lot longer than me. He's probably been teaching like 27 or 28 years. Reminds me a lot of your father. He's actually a physics teacher, not an English teacher, but very similar personality to your father. And that's why I get along with him so well. And he was part of union probably for, you know, half of his career. And now he's kind of, gone on to do uh he, he's in charge of the school play so he does that now and that's his focus but um I was, I was fortunate to be able to go from your father talking about these types of things that were all new to me to now these other teachers where i kind of used the knowledge from your father and gave it to them you know and then some of these other teachers that had been there a little longer like the one i'm talking about my friend uh, mike um to kind of keep up that discussion and keep um, that skeptical eye on administration and it's paid off. I mean, we're at the point now where, um, because of the way the economy was in 2008 with the crash and all of that, there were many years where schools were scrambling as far as contracts and things like that, but we've come full circle now where enough of us have kept on administration and kept on the board, um, that we've built a mutual respect. And we just signed the best contract we've had since I started uh, for that reason, I think. Because enough younger teachers, well, not younger teachers, but teachers that have been in it for about as long as I have, that's the biggest part of the school population because there were so many retirements when your father went. Um, and being taught from teachers like your father about how to negotiate the politics means that, um, those of us that have, you know, kind of behind the lines kept pressure on administration and those like your father that were part of the union kept enough pressure and built up enough respect that now it's, you know, we've achieved this goal. So it's great. You know, it's great that um, 
we all had uh, such a great group of mentors, your father and that whole generation that went in 2003, 2004, um, there was so much great advice from them, you know? And some of those guys had like gone to jail in the 70s. I don't know if your father did, but some of the Yugi guys in the 70s went to jail, you know, uh, striking and things like that. So there was some, some crazy things that happened early in the day to get us the type of, you know, um, contracts that we get notice. Yeah, no, he, he wasn't part of the jail movement, but he was pretty close a couple of times. I know that for sure. He was worried about it at times. Yeah. Well, Rich, I want to be respectful of your time and I, I just can't thank you enough for coming on to, to do this show in this right. episode, but we have this one final question we ask every guest. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? That's a good question. Um, all right. I, I can think of one thing that um, I would change as far as high school. I don't know if this applies as much to college, because I think college probably achieves this a little better than high school does. Um, I think that we're stuck still in the high school level, in America at least. I know it's different in uh, some European countries. We're stuck with this idea of trying to think of how to word this because I do believe that all students should have you know a breadth of knowledge so, so all students should know math science history etc especially the arts I don't think we do enough of that right that's why I teach the music history class to kind of tie that together um, however I don't think we give enough room for high school students to find their particular um, gift and their particular focus. And I think that's why so many of us, um, I know I'm like that, it seems like you went through the same thing. When we get to college, we're kind of confused as to where to go, what direction to take. Um, and, and it may not be college, right? Some, some may find their expertise or their zone of genius in another avenue that's not college, exactly. you know, and that, that could be okay too, but we need to foster that. For you know, sure. in, in New York, we have the BOCES system, which works pretty well with that as far as, um, I, I know when we were in high school, BOCES was more about the special education side, but nowadays it's more about the trade school side, right? So uh, like, for example, Jasmine's son is, uh, or did BOCES for, um, uh, to be an electrician, want to be an electrician. So that sort of thing, um, they are preparing. They're actually doing that better with the trade school side, I think, than anything else. Because from 11th grade on in New York, now they're learning their trade. But when it comes to, uh, you know, the higher, uh, the, the college type of fields uh, of education, I feel that because we have such an archaic system as far as ninth grade English, 10th grade English, 11th grade English, like, we have it set so uh, in stone that you have to learn this, have to learn that, rather than having a little more of a loose system where students can kind of find their, again, their gift or their talent. Um, you know, I read about, for example, uh, I know you're into music as much as I am, um, the art schools in Europe, where you have these art high schools and these art colleges where you know, there's the one that produced Radiohead and it produced like the Rolling Stones. And um, that goes into a more political thing because um, the, uh, there's, uh, there's subsidies for that. And, and you know, they, they, they're able to pay, students are able to go to college for free and get like instruments paid for and things like that. But because there's this focus from such a young age on the particular career, in that case, music, um, it's instilled into the student at such a young age um, that they should, you know, find their path and be adventurous with their path. And that's why that particular school has produced such amazing musicians, such adventurous musicians, because from very young, right, you know, from 13, 14 years old, they were already thinking about those types of things. And that's true from what I understand in, in all the other fields, too. So if you, you know, have a gift for science and you're you're already uh, being adventurous as far as, you know, with whatever field of science that is in the lab or whatever, from a younger age than you would um, in America, because we have all these prerequisite things, you know, you have to do, you have to pass this region, you have to pass that region and whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's, that's what I'd like to see. I don't know, obviously, how that would happen. You know, it would have to be kind of an overhaul of the entire system. 
but obviously, you know, in, in a very general sense, we're still under the same system that we were 100 years ago as far as like the Bell 40-minute system. Um, even with that, with that technical side of it, I'd like to see, you know, longer classes. You know, maybe you get to go to, like with, with college, you get to go to uh, English class for two hours on this day, maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, rather than little blips every day, right? Because you're not preparing kid, most kids for the factory anymore. You don't need that bell system the way you do now. So in that technical sense, I think it could be changed. And some schools do that. Um, even some schools on Long Island have a different system than, than we do. But uh, in a more expansive sense, I'd like to see uh, you know kids able to kind of negotiate their path from a younger age if that's possible. Yeah, yeah a little more freedom, a little more autonomy, a little more ebb and flow, and just kind of figuring it out on their own and we're just kind of the the navigators yeah, exactly you know? i think that's 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 definitely I like uh i don't you know foresee it in my you know what i have left in my career but i try to do it as much as i can in the classroom as far that's why i i try to make my class so general again you know i i, I try to emphasize that i don't expect they're all going to be famous writers or something you know or English teachers, you know, um, I, I, I'd rather them become curious at whatever they're going to become curious about. That, that, that's the most important thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, again, Rich, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on today. Where can people find you if they have follow-up questions or uh, want to follow you on social media or any of those? Sure. Um, let me think on, well, I mean, as far as email, uh, it's Ferrara at lufsd.org, so that's Lindenhurst. Uh, I don't know why it's, um, I don't know why they call schools around Long Island union free school districts, because we're not, but for some reason we still do that. So that's what it stands for. Yeah, we Lindenhurst union free school district, so lufsd.org. Um, I'm Dr. Benway, even though I'm not a doctor, um, but it's um, actually on, on Instagram, it's uh, Doc Benway, D-O-C-B-E-N-W-A-Y. That was a music handle that I had that I still go by on Instagram. Uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, I don't do Twitter, so <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right, we'll put those links in the show notes so everyone can reach you easily if they need to. Rich, pleasure talking to you, man. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.